0: Probably every one of you in here has had something physical, emotional, psychological that drove you to do something that you later regretted. I'm not going to ask you to stick your hands up. It would be embarrassing. Everybody in here has done something that you had this impulse, this drive. You didn't didn't even understand it. You just let animal instinct and it was like, I do this thing and then I feel so guilty. (laughs) Been there, done that, got the t-shirt. So how does this work? How can God take that kind of brokenness and ultimately make something beautiful out of it? How does he create someone who is what the Bible would call temperate? I think there are two changes that take place in our heart. Two things that God does in our life that create that. And I want to talk about those this morning. Here's the first change that takes place is that when this happens in you, God occupies his rightful place. That God occupies his rightful place in your life. We see this illustrated in stark clarity in the story of the golden calf, which we can read about. This fledgling nation of Israel it has this moment of, of profound brokenness. God has saved them. He's delivered them out of slavery. They've come through the Red Sea. They're on, you know, at the base of Mount Sinai. And, I mean, they're, they're in this new covenant, or this relationship with God of a, of a covenant now. <laughs> and then this happens. Look with me at Exodus 32, starting in verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, now why is he up there? He's getting the law. Ten Commandments, the, 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 what we read, the, the second half of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, it's, he's getting the law, okay? When they saw he was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, Moses' brother, and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. He's been up there for weeks, alone with God. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. Remember, when they left Egypt, they were, they were told to ask the Egyptians for wealth. And it's, the Bible says that that's how they plundered the Egyptians. So they've got all the wealth of the Egyptians, and it's just, it's just, they're totally blinged out. Okay? And Moses says, or Aaron says, give it to me. So the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. All right, look at this. It says... He took what they handed him and made it into an idol. I seem to recall one of the Ten Commandments being about that. Like, we're going downhill fast. He made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, Now notice it's the people, not Aaron. These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. Oh, my word, they're giving credit for something God did to an idol. Bad move, Israel. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. He's trying to put it back on the rails. It's not working very well. Look at verse 6. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to, here's the key phrase, indulge in revelry. These people had been miraculously delivered from slavery in Egypt and in just a couple months at maximum, maybe just a few weeks, they were quite willing to trade that freedom and the transcendence of worshiping the Almighty God for a God they could see and the slavery of being subject to their impulses. You see this phrase, indulge in revelry. Just Guys, just leave that up on the screen for a little bit. I want you to just leave that passage up there. That phrase is a single word in the original language. Uh, indulge in revelry, in revelry is a single word in the original language, and it's often used in the Bible in two different contexts. The first one is when people are mocking God. They're making fun of God. That's the first major use for that word. The second major use for that word where we see it used is, um, I'm going to try to state this as judiciously as possible because there may be some children listening, um, It's when pagans engage in ritual forms of sexual expression in worship. Read between the lines there. They're throwing a party. That's what Israel was doing just a few weeks after walking through the Red Sea, after seeing the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. That's what they're doing, they're indulging their instincts. As you can imagine, that didn't fit real well in God's plan for their new covenant. <laughs> See, our indulging of our flesh, or sinful nature, as Paul would say in Romans 5, it is really just a poor substitute for what has been happening ever since the Garden of Eden. You remember the story, Genesis chapter 3. It says that Adam and Eve saw that the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was pleasing to the eye and good for food. What is that? That's their appetite at work. It's an impulse. They just indulged. "Mm, That looks tasty. I don't know, maybe it didn't crunch. It might have squished. We don't know what kind of fruit it was. And all creation fell into disrepair. It happened in the garden. It happened. We see it in the Garden of Eden. We see it in Exodus 32 with the golden calf. And we even see it, believe it or not, in The Lord of the Rings. I want to show you a clip from the movie The Return of the King. In the clip, there are two hobbits, Pippin and Mary, or Pip. Pippin has looked into a magic stone that has revealed their location to Sauron, the Dark Lord. All Watch the what happens. inquisitive hobbits Peregrine took! You are the worst. Hurry, hurry! Where are we going? Why did you look? Why do you always have to look? I don't know. I can't help it. You never can. I'm sorry, all right. I won't do it again. Don't you understand? The enemy thinks you have the ring. He's going to be looking for you, Pip. They have to get you out of here. And you, you're coming with me? Mary? Come on. How far is Minas Three days ride, as the Nazgul flies. And you better hope we don't have one of those on our tail. Here, something for the road. Last of the long bottom leaf. I know you've run out. You smoke too much, Pip. But, but we'll see each other soon. Show us the meaning of hate. Do you hear what he said? You smoke too much. He hands him the, what in Middle Earth passes for tobacco. And he, he gives it to him and he says, this is a little treat for the road. I know you've run out. <laughs> so you got got this, this character who is, he can't help but look in the magic stone that he wasn't supposed to touch, and he can't help but smoke through all of his tobacco early and... He's run by his impulses. It gets him into trouble. Gandalf and Mary go on to have a conversation about how they always, they're always into trouble, and he can't help him out of it now. And some would say, well, he's enabling his friend's addiction. Maybe, a little bit, yeah. But he's also confronting him about it. He's showing compassion on him in that moment. I want to tell you something this morning. As long as your impulses run your life, then your impulses are your God. I'll say that again. As long as your impulses run your life, then your impulses are your God. And if that's true for you this morning, then the only thing I can tell you are the words of Jesus in Matthew 4.17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, it's a kingdom of grace, and there's forgiveness, and there's freedom there. But you've got to bring that brokenness to Jesus and let him have it. I need to tell you that until God occupies his rightful place as the king and ruler of your life, you will be continually enslaved to your impulses. But when you follow the plan of repentance that the Bible lays out to own up to what you've done wrong, to take some position of repentance or contrition in your life and to then receive mercy from God, if you'll do that, you can know the freedom that comes when God has his rightful and deserved place in your life. So how do you follow these three steps of repentance for God to have first place in your life? Let me just offer this suggestion to you this morning. First of all, admit that you've put impulse over God. If this is where you're at today, the, the first step in getting better is admitting it. Just saying, yeah, I know what God says, that he says not to do these things, and I often find myself, I just can't help it, and I got to own up to that. You just acknowledge that that's going on. Admit that it's a problem, that your impulses are running in your life, okay? The second step in this is express your contrition, your repentance in fasting, There's more than one way to do this, but this is one of the best ways I can suggest. And fasting is intentionally abstaining from something that is allowed for the purpose of prayer. That's what fasting is. And it doesn't have to be food, it often is. But it can be sleep, it can be being intimate with your spouse. I mean, there are a lot of different things it can be. Um, There's a point in my life where I was absolutely positively addicted to soda. I could not function unless I'd had a 32-ounce Mountain Dew every morning. In the town we lived in at the time, where the, our former ministry was, there was a drive through convenience store. My kids are nodding because they had to go with me sometimes. You could, you could pull through this place and get a 32-ounce Mountain Dew for a dollar and not even have to get out of your car. You didn't even burn the four calories it took to get up off your backside and walk into the store. It was awesome for an addict. And so to break that, I had to do a 40-day fast from all forms of soda. Those were fun days. (laughs) It worked, though. As as the fasting reinforced, because every time I, I need a soda. No, you need to pray. Oh, I need to look at, no, you need to pray. Oh, I need to talk to, no, you need to pray. Fasting can be a way to break that impulsive desire that you're having. And then here's the cool thing. This, the third step in this is to revel in experiencing the presence of Jesus. To just drink it up. Just enjoy it. This is the amazing thing. We said a couple weeks ago that you know if you don't feel close to God, guess who moved? It's not him. He won't abandon you. He's faithful. When you're struggling, he's right there with you. The Holy Spirit is still whispering in your ear going, come on, man. But If you continue to embrace being run by your impulses, you will feel a distance from God. You, you will feel, and I, I, listen, I know because I have felt this pain where it feels like your prayers are just bouncing off the ceiling. And God is urging you to repent today. And when you do that, you will feel a closeness to Jesus. It's, it's better than any high you'll ever get from any Mountain Dew you'll ever drink. So much better. There's so much freedom in it. And if, if you'll follow these steps, you'll will, you will find in increasing measure, more and more, that Jesus really is the one in charge in your life, that he really does have first place in your life. And there's so much freedom and joy there, and I want you to have that. I'm not there yet. I'm not all the way there yet, but I've tasted a little bit, and it is too good to let go of. But that's not all. There's a second change that happens when, when we repent of letting our impulses run our lives the second change that happens is that we keep in step with the spirit <laughs> you ever seen that poster that says never fly faster than your guardian angel can fly or never drive faster than your guardian angel can fly we, I, you know don't you shouldn't do that uh, don't do it metaphorically either that's not good open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5 verse 13 Galatians 5.13. Now, one of the great fruits of repentance is feeling like you're really keeping in step with the Lord. Now, there have been times that God had to drag me kicking and screaming into His will. It was not fun. I did not want to do that. And there have been a few times when I was way out ahead of Him and I thought I got it all figured out. I'm like, oh, I know what God wants. And I'm following this impulse, and I might think, I might justify it, I might baptize my impulse, oh, this is good, and I'm way out in front of God, and he's got to kind of yank the leash back, and it, it's not fun either. See, Paul's trying to teach the church in Galatia, which is modern-day south-central Turkey, he's trying to teach the church in Galatia the same thing. He had to teach them that when they repent of letting their impulses run their lives, when when they really turn from letting their indulgent nature run them, that they get to experience the blessing of really walking with God. Look at this with me, Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, he's talking to the church, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge, there's our word, indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out, or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk in the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You want to be free from influence or from impulse running your life? You need to walk in the Spirit. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other so that you are not not to do whatever you want. This is the same thing Paul's talking about at the end of Romans 7. He says, oh, wretched man that I am. he, He let himself have it there. He said, verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, he's going to list them here, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. Like, what did he leave out? I think he pretty well got it all there, right? I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not Inherit the kingdom of God. Paul couldn't be any clearer. If you let your impulses run your life outside of the grace of Jesus, you will not be in heaven. Then, my favorite word in the Bible, <laughs> but. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. Now, this translation says forbearance. If you've memorized it like I did years ago, yours might say patience. They chose this word because when we think of patience, we think of just sitting there waiting on a bus. And that's not really the idea behind the word. The idea behind the biblical word, which used to be translated patience, they translate forbearance, is the idea of bearing up under trial. That when things are hard, you're still going to hang in there and stay with the Lord. You're still going to stay with Jesus even when things are hard. That's what that means. And then it goes on, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. Listen, one thing that's vital for you to understand in this passage is that the word, the fruit in verse 22 is singular. These All together are the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. The Spirit does all of these things in your life. What I'm saying to you is that there's no gift of self-control. The gifts are listed elsewhere. Ephesians 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, that's where the gifts are listed. The fruit, singular, is that the Holy Spirit is doing all of these things in you you as He shapes you into the image of Christ as you engage in this continual process of of bringing your brokenness to Jesus and letting the gospel change you and and then sharing that with somebody else. (laughs) People, I just don't have the gift of of self-control. Nobody does. It doesn't exist. You're making stuff up. The, The Spirit does that in us. He creates that in us. See, I believe a big part of continuing in the life of Christ is participating in this lifelong pattern of repentance as we become more aware of the, the places where we allow our impulses to take God's place. When our kids were little, they would play this game called self-control. They'd run around like little hooligans, scream, yell, and they're just jumping all over the house. And, and then one of them, above the din and racket, would yell, self-control, and then all go... And they'd stand there for a little bit, at attention, stiff as a board. few blessed moments of quiet. <laughs> and then they'd go back, "Ah, like little barbarians. It was a game they played. How many people do you know still play that game? That's their idea of self-control. I'm going to be pull my act together for a little bit until I can go back to doing what I really want to do. That is not what Scripture teaches. That's not the biblical model of temperance, my friends. What self-control, what temperance, what moderation really is, is both an initial surrender to Jesus and and a lifelong surrender to the Spirit of God. You do it initially on the day of your decision to follow Jesus, to be baptized, when the Spirit of God comes into your life and takes away your sin and puts you into a right relationship with God, and is the resource by which you draw on to continue in a life of righteousness. That happens once initially on the day of your conversion, and it happens, I hope, every day thereafter as you surrender more and more and more of your life to Jesus Christ. It's both. It's both and. It's not an either-or thing. So here's what these three steps of repentance look like as they help us keep in step with the Spirit. First of all, that you've got to acknowledge that His Word is greater than your will. I've said this before in other ways. You're probably going to get sick of hearing it until I feel like we're all doing a pretty good job of it. But this gets to outrank your opinion every time. You don't ever get to have an opinion that outranks this, like ever, if you're going to follow Jesus. God's Word always gets to outrank your will. God's Word is always greater than your will, and until you acknowledge that, you're going to struggle in this area. As you surrender and submit your life to the Word, these things become easier. This, this, this process becomes easier. And so that, that's the first part of it. You got to own up to that, okay? The second part of this process of this position of repentance, putting your life in a position of repentance, is, is something I want to teach you that, that I learned from Richard Foster. He wrote the book Celebration of Discipline. This is his idea, as far as I know. I got, at least I got it from him. But I want to pass it on to you. It's called Palms Up, Palms Down Exercise. And this is part of your prayer life, okay? So you, you begin by praying God, I just want to listen to you today. I just want to hear everything that you have to say for me today with your palms up in a, in a posture of receiving. And then you turn your palms over and say, God, I renounce my sin. I reject everything that has damaged the closeness that I feel with you. And take a moment to confess those things to the Lord. List them. <laughs> this week, I I accuse myself of the following sins. And God, I just I want to receive the mercy that once again that you gave me on the cross that day I decided to follow Jesus. I just... I receive that from you. And and Lord, I want to just lay aside everything of the world that's distracting me right now. And it's just as you pray, whenever you're talking about receiving something from God, your palms are up and open. Whenever you're rejecting self and turning aside from the things that distract you from your relationship with the Lord, your palms are down. And it's this palms up, palms down exercise. This has been such a blessing to me in my prayer life. And I think it'll bless you too. It's just you putting yourself physically in a position. You can do it sitting down, standing up, however you, whatever posture you want to take, that works. And one more thing here. The third stage in this as we receive mercy is that you get to enjoy some divine appointments. You know what I mean when I say divine appointments? That God, put, God puts something in your calendar that you didn't put there? You know, let me give you one possible example, right? So you go to the gas station and you're going to buy gas and, and all of a sudden you can't help because it's kind of loud and it's happening right next to, you know, on the other side of the pump. You hear this young single mom and she's like, what? I, no, this card was supposed to be refilled. Oh, oh, man. There's no money on the card, which means there's no money for gas, which means she can't get to work, which means the problem spirals out of control. Guess why you needed to be there to get gas that day? Do you know how much fun it is, how freeing it is to walk around to the other side of the pump and go, hey, this one's on me. I got it. (laughs) Right? Isn't that awesome? God has blessed you. He's put you in the right place at the right time. That is a divine appointment. You don't get to have that fun if you're totally ruled by your impulses and you're not listening to the Spirit. You're going to miss out on those opportunities. <laughs> and God bless you if there are children in the car who get to watch that happen. You know, I remember this one time that Grandma, we were at the gas station and there was a single mom there and she didn't have money to buy and Grandma went around and just bought their gas. Isn't that cool? What's that going to do in their life for the next 50 years? I began by saying I didn't want to talk about this. The reason is I still got a long way to go. I'll, I'll I'll stand up here totally honest, I am not where I want to be yet. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one in this room for whom that's true. I've trusted Jesus for my salvation. I don't doubt that. This this isn't relative to our, our standing in and out of the kingdom. I know that my sins are forgiven. If you've given Jesus your life, your sins are forgiven. I also know that the holiest people I've ever met in my whole life were the ones who were most painfully aware of the areas of lingering brokenness where they still hadn't surrendered that little bit of their life to the Lord. most felt the need for repentance. And they had the strongest desire for the Spirit of God to live in them. In her classic work, The Christian's Secret to a Holy Life, Hannah Whitehall Smith wrote this, our will carries along the rest of our nature. If we control ourselves, or if, if we control our will ourselves, then we live. If we surrender it to Christ and let Him control it, then He lives in us. And when we do this, he really does take possession and really does begin to work within us. Has Jesus done that in your life today? Are you ready for him to? In just a little while, you're going to have an opportunity to come forward and and place your piece of glass in our stained glass project. And if you're new here at Chapel Rock, um, you're, you're invited to do this. If you've only been coming for a couple weeks it's okay. You can, you can do this. We'll give more instructions about that here in a little while. Some of you, though, are here today, and you've been letting your impulses run your life. And I'm going to offer you an opportunity to put that behind you. Because le- until you have the Spirit of God living in you, that's going to continue to be your story. You can change your story today. The band is going to lead us in a song. And we'll be down here to receive you. And if you're ready to give your life to Christ, to surrender that to him entirely, then you come as we sing. There'll be people down here to pray with you. If you need prayer, you can go to the next step room under the yellow awning. I'm not sure how God's working in your heart. I want want you to get this one more time. Listen to me. Here's the big idea again. God can make beauty out of the brokenness of your indulgence when you give increasing control of your life to Jesus. Will you do that today? Even if you made that decision a long time ago, I would challenge you to not walk out of this room until you renew that decision to give him your life. If if you're ready to do it for the first time, or if you need prayer for something, you come as we stand together. Will you stand with me? Let's sing.